We are in Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 4. Today we're going to be covering verses 12 through 20 in Galatians chapter 4. So turn there, if you will, uh, in your Bibles as we get ready to go through this together. If you recall, or if you've noticed in the time that we've been tackling Galatians, all the way from when Paul starts his letter in chapter 1, verse 1, up until last week, which was chapter 4, verse 11, from 1, 1 to 4, 11, Paul, if you've noticed, Paul's been what we would call a little bit confrontational, perhaps even a little impersonal in his address, because he's addressing a very serious matter. He's been writing uh, to the churches in Galatia. He's been writing his letter like a scholar or like a lawyer or like a theologian in order to get his irrefutable message across. In these verses thus far, he's referred to the Old Testament, which we've already covered, to teach the basic truth of the gospel that he had already taught them once before. And that is this, that salvation, being right with God, salvation is by God's grace alone through man's faith alone. And so Paul has sounded, if you will, from 1.1 to 4.11, he has sounded perhaps a little detached, seeming to be more concerned about principles than about people. Let's read Galatians 4.12 through 20 together, alright? Galatians 4, starting in verse 12. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, he says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. So what happened? Where then is that sense of blessing that you had for me? For I bear you witness that if possible... There was a time when you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16 is just so pointed. He says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? What a great question. They eagerly seek you, the the false teachers, the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out from the church, from Christ, so that you will seek them. But it is always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So, it may appear that Paul is more concerned about principles than people. But, as we know, Paul was indeed a wonderful spiritual father. He knew how to balance, as we as parents must learn how to balance as well. Paul knew how to balance rebuke with love. There must be a gentle side in each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. There must be a gentle side to every faithful servant of God. No matter how serious the doctrine that we need to defend or how corrupting the immorality is, may be exposed, that needs to be exposed, we must be sensitive and compassionate people in doing so. Amen? 2 Timothy 2.4 says this. Paul wrote to Timothy, who's a pastor. He says, The Lord's bondservant, 
Timothy, you and the people you're teaching and preaching to must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everybody, able to teach and patient when wronged. Sometimes we wrong one another, don't we? But we're to be kind when that happens and to be patient. Listen, listen to this. This is what I want you to hear. As followers of Christ, as God's bond servants that you and I are, we must be uncompromising in our godly doctrine, for sure, but also uncompromising in our godly demeanor. We can't just be uncompromising in doctrine and throw out our godly demeanor. We must be both. We can't just be one. Christ was. I read a book about six or seven months ago um, called Love Kindness. And it's by Dr. Barry Corey. Barry Corey is the president of Biola University. Fantastic book. Highly recommended. I couldn't put it down. And let me just read a few things. He says, too often in our concern, I'm sorry, too often our centers are firm on conviction, but our edges are hard in our tactics. That way or this way is characterized by aggression. And then he says, kindness, listen, kindness is the way of firm centers and soft edges. Isn't that beautiful? Kindness is the way of firm centers, but soft edges. That's the way we're to be. It's the way Christ was. So Paul turns from 1.1 to 4.11, he turns now from rebuking or spanking to loving and embracing the people in Galatia. And so it begs the question, who do we allow in our lives that we allow to spank us and also embrace us when we need it? We need to have people like that in our lives. We do. At one point, as we just read, they were willing to sacrifice anything for Paul, but the Judaizers had stolen their affection. And so pay attention. We must be aware. You must be aware and extremely careful and cautious of what can steal your affection, just as what happened to the churches in Galatia. Things want to steal our affection and our devotion. And the enemy knows exactly what those things are. So we better be hyper aware of what those things are that can steal our affection if it's not for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it causes Paul to write in verse 16, what happened? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Well, when our affection is stolen, somehow the truth creates animosity in our lives. It's interesting. Many of us have been there and done that. Let's pray. God, You are a great God. And You are doing great things. And so we trust You to do great things moving forward because that is Your track record. Lord, we pray that through our text this morning that You would continue to mold us and shape us and have Your way with us. That we would never lose our affection for You. That we would indeed be aware and careful of what has the potential to steal our affection. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. So here's our outline for uh, this morning. The first four verses, 12 through 15, is the relationship. Paul talks about how they met and the relationship that they had, that they would even pluck out their eyes for him. They loved Paul. And they received him, he says, as an angel, even as Jesus Christ himself. And then that one verse, the recoil, where he says, 
have we become enemies because I'm telling you the truth? Like they're recoiling at Paul. They're recoiling from the truth. And then the romance, if you will. In, chap- in verse 17 of chapter 4, the, that it says it a couple times, they eagerly seek you. That eagerly seek you is like being courted, like a man courting a woman to try to gain her devotion, if you will. To be romanced. So that's our outline. So let's hit the first stanza, the relationship. Verses 12 through 15. Let's read those again. Paul writes, I beg of you, brethren, because be, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I ended up here preaching to you the gospel the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Hmm. So he says in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, he says, I beg of you, become as I am. I beg of you to become as I am. What does that mean? Go back to Galatians 2, verse 19. Verse, chapter 2, verse 19, this is what he wanted them to become. He says, for through the law, our flesh, for through the law, Paul writes, I died to the law. And you need to do the same. And you have done the same. Why? So that I might live to God. In other words, outside of Jesus Christ, we're dead to God. We want to be alive to God. We want to be in relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ. We're dead to God. There's no other way. And so Paul says, become like me. Become dead to the law because I became like you. I'm dead to the law also. How did you lose sight of that? In other words, in his flesh, because what Christ did in his flesh on the cross, in his flesh, which is grace, we are alive to God. But in our flesh, the law, trying to work our way to heaven, We are dead to God. And so Paul is basically saying this. He's saying, you know how I lived since receiving Jesus Christ. You know what my life was like. That's how I want you to live as well. Hmm. Strong words. Are you and I in communion or companionship with anyone like Paul who lives well in Christ? I hope so. Do you regularly seek them out and give these people who live well, do you give them access to your life? We need to. Every Tuesday morning, some of you may know this, some of you may not, it's not a big deal, but every Tuesday morning at 7.30, I meet with Pastor Dave and Rob Selleck. Every Tuesday, we've been doing it for like a year and a half. Two men that live well in Christ. And I give them access to my life. Fortunately, there's nothing wrong with me. So we spend the bulk of the time working on their issues. I'm just a servant that way. What can I say? I'm regularly in contact with Pastor John, and I give him access to my life. And John knows, having walked in my shoes, how's it going? Where are you hurting? How can I be praying for you? And I let him know. And he pours into me. I'm well-loved and well-cared for. And there are others as well. And so here's an interesting question that comes on the heels of that. Do you... Do you, Paul writes, I beg you become like me. Do you live like Paul? Whereby you could encourage somebody to become as you are. We should. We should be able to say to somebody, become as I am. I'm living rightly with God. Or would we have exceptions in our lives? 
yeah, be like me, but it's not this area, maybe not this area. We surely don't want to talk about that area. In other words, do as I say and not as I do. Hmm. Apparently, as our verses tell us, Paul was forced to go to Galatia because of a certain illness. The common suggestion is that Paul had malaria because malaria sometimes attacks the optic nerve. His affliction uh, may have affected his sight and, of course, his appearance because he says, you didn't loathe me. He was gross to look at. The possibility of of it being poor eyesight is perhaps validated in Galatians chapter 6, which is the last chapter, verse 11, where he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you. And then also in our verse for today, verse 15, uh, verse 15 where he says, you would have plucked out your eyes for me. So there's a, just a strong chance that that's what the deal was with Paul. Whatever it was, our text reveals that it made Paul repulsive in appearance. And yet Paul commends them for receiving him in spite of his looks. Hmm. Paul was amazed that they received him even as an angel of God or Christ himself. And so I wonder, how do we treat people, godly people, with shortcomings? Do we treat people that look a little different, that act a little different, but are no less God's children? Do we treat them as lesser than people? Or do we embrace them like the Galatians embraced Paul, who didn't look so great? One of my favorite verses in Scripture is 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7, where God tells um, Samuel to go to to Jesse's house because he wants to find a king for the nation of Israel. And he lines up all of his sons, Jesse does. And when they entered all his sons, Samuel looked at uh, Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Don't, Don't look at his appearance. Or at the height of his stature, I rejected him. Why? Because God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. Oh, we're so guilty of that. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so how that plays out for me is like this. Not so impressive. Okay, I'll give you that. But I can look in the mirror from that scripture and say, you are one handsome devil. You get what I'm saying? Right? I am good looking in the eyes of God because God looks at my heart. It is the deepest desire of my heart that who I am here speaking and preaching and sharing God's truth with you is exactly who I am when I'm with friends. It's exactly who I am when I'm in the car by myself. And it's exactly who I am at home. I'm goofy like this at home just like I am with you guys. You're getting nothing different. I want to be extremely good looking in the eyes of God when He looks at my heart. What a great picture. What a great picture. Here in these verses, we see here how the Lord uses hardship, Paul's affliction. He uses hardship and suffering in order to get the gospel preached into this province of Galatia. That's the first thing. Then we see here the second thing, a great demonstration by these Galatian people, because their hearts are right, that they will accept truth from Paul, even when he looks kind of nasty and looks like one of the least of these. And so for me, it sure seems to be the case that when we are right with God, when our hearts are right with God, we will embrace and love even the worst of people. And conversely, when we are not right with God, we will reject even the best of people. Because people reject the best man that's ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ. Perfect. All the time. When our hearts are not right with God, we will reject even the best of people. But when they are right, we will embrace and love even the worst of folks. 
That's probably why you guys love me so much, and I appreciate that. I really do. I got to just keep preaching this so you guys will, you know, work, so that we're good. You get what I'm saying? Pulling the lens back a little bit further and looking at a bigger picture, consider kind of the staging process that's going on here. Stage one, during Paul's first missionary journey to Galatia, which you can read about in Acts chapter 14, do you remember what happened to Paul in his first trip to Galatia? They threw something at him. What were those things called? Stones. They threw stones at him. They stoned him. They thought he was dead, and they dragged him out of the city. That's stage one. Stage two is what we're reading about here, where he gets this affliction, and the Lord leads him to Galatia. And they received him as an angel of God. And their faith was strong. And then in stage 3, which happens in verses 15 and 16, when he says, where then has your sense of blessing gone? Where's that sense of blessing? Have I become your enemy? Like, what happened? So you got this complete rejection, this complete acceptance, and then they rebel. And so to me, this scenario is often the cycle of God's redemptive work in a lot of our lives where we reject Christ and then we run to Christ and then we rebel against Christ and then we kind of start the whole process all over again. That just seems to be how it works. We must hang in there with people when God does His redemptive work. And so if God's redemptive work in Avery's life is four years, but it takes me 40 years to get to the same place, that's just what you're stuck with. I can't help that, I suppose, on some level. God just does different things in different ways, but He's doing His redemptive work. And we just need to hang in there with people when God does what God does. We must be prepared for that, both individually, but more importantly, individually we make up the church, the body of Christ. We must do this as a church, as God does His redemptive work. Because that work's never done. That work's never done until we breathe our last and we spend eternity with Him. So that's our first stanza, the relationship. Let's look at the recoil, uh, verse 16. Let's read that. Galatians 4, verse 16. (laughs) Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Wow. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It doesn't seem possible that this would even be a real question. But it is indeed a question, and it is indeed a reality. Consider this. The truth only becomes our enemy when we are not walking in it. Right? The truth only becomes our enemy when we're not walking in it. Let's look at some reasons why. Look at Genesis 1, verse 4. Genesis 1, verse 4. God saw, right, this is the fourth verse in all the scripture. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Look at John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. John 3, verse 18. He who believes in Him, in Jesus Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's how we become an enemy of truth. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his or her deeds 
will be exposed. That's why Paul writes, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yeah, because I want to live in darkness. I want to live in my evil deeds. I don't want you to expose the things that I'm trying to do in secret and in sin. Mm. Proverbs 27, verse 6. What a great proverb, uh, proverb this is. Faithful are the wounds or the words or the truth of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses, the lies of an enemy. Paul is proving his love by telling them the truth, but they would not accept it. They were enjoying the kisses of the Judaizers, not realizing that these kisses are leading them to bondage and to sorrow. Christ had made them, as we read about last week, Christ had made them sons and made them heirs, but they were becoming slaves and beggars by going back to the law instead of the freedom of Christ. It's just one more reason, church, to keep the Word of God as a centerpiece in our lives. Why? Why? So that we can realize, listen, when we keep God's Word as the centerpiece of our lives, then we can realize the deceitful kisses of an enemy. We can say, hmm, that's not according to truth. But that we can also then, listen to this, embrace the wounds of a friend. When I sit down with Pastor Dave and with Rob on a Tuesday morning because I'm immersed in God's Word and they say, hey, maybe you should eh, click this a little bit. I can embrace that as the wounds of a beloved friend. Turn to James chapter 1. To the right of Galatians, turn to James. It's right after Hebrews. James 1. 22 through 25. Church. <laughs> right? It's like God saying, I need proof. I need proof that you're a follower of mine. This, that's one way to look at these verses. Verse 22, but prove, prove yourselves as doers of the Word of God. Not merely hearers who are delusional, <laughs> right? Who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, God's word, which brings us liberty and abides by it, not having to become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So often we're wondering where the Lord's blessings are. So man, just be a doer of my word. You'll be blessed in all that you do. It's pretty awesome. The reality is, the Galatians were guilty of defecting. They were guilty of spiritual defection. And nothing rips the heart of a pastor, a youth worker, a missionary, or whatever, so much as seeing somebody turn away from the faith. Imagine how much it also grieves the heart of God. Imagine how much, when we don't walk according to truth, how much that grieves the heart of God. Ephesians 4.30 encourages us to not grieve the Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We were sealed for the day of redemption. He bought us with the price, the price of His life, the price of His blood, and it grieves Him when we walk away. It grieves Him when we don't live our lives according to the truth of His Word. 
but keep in mind this. Besides grieving the Lord, our defection and our rebellion is never just about us. Besides grieving the Lord, it also grieves a lot of other people. When we're not walking right with the Lord, other people are affected immensely. Most of us don't live in a bubble. When we are not walking according to the truth of God's Word, it grieves a lot of people, not just the Lord. So let's be honest. We defect for a reason. We defect for a reason. And we need to be aware of what it is that we would defect for. We need to be honest and tell our, and, and, and ask ourselves and be aware, what are we prone to turn to that would cause us to turn from our Lord? What are we prone to turn to that would cause us to turn from our God? Because that's where the enemy is going to hit you up. That's where he's going to meet you. If you don't address that with God, then you're going to address it with the enemy and he's going to kick your butt. There's a story by John MacArthur. Let me read it to you. He says, A prostitute came to our church one day looking for help. And she was quite successful financially, but was plagued by tremendous feelings of guilt and anxiety. She drank heavily, took drugs, and realized that her life was in shambles. When I explained the gospel to her and assured her that God was eager to forgive her sins and give her new life if she trusted in Jesus, she expressed a great interest. During the course of our conversation, she had told me of a little book in which she kept the names and phone numbers of her customers. And so I suggested, John MacArthur writes, that we take the book and burn it right then as a symbol of her repentance and renunciation of her old life. But she balked at the idea. And she said, I can't do that. Those names are worth a lot of money. I guess I don't want Jesus as much as I thought I did. Like many people, she knew her way of life was wrong and ruinous, but she loved it more than the Lord and would not give it up. We better be aware of those things that will cause us to defect, because that's where the enemy is going to hit us up. Unless we get a handle on those things. Think about this. Oftentimes, this this is just so true, oftentimes in our rebellion against God, We don't turn to the Lord for the simple reason that we fear we will not be able to sustain that relationship. We won't be able to sustain our obedience to Him. And so then we tell ourselves what? Why bother? That's a lie from the pit of hell. Lord, I can't turn to You. I may not be able to continue to follow You. I don't know if I can sustain it. So why bother? Let me encourage you this way. If you can't sustain a healthy relationship with the Lord's help, what chance will you have without it? Right? You get what I'm saying? You don't stand a chance to sustain a relationship with God without His help. And that in and of itself, if you're in that place, should drop you to your knees immediately and say, God, I need you because I don't think, I know I can't do this on my own. Don't run from Him, run to Him. Because God loves us and He says He never leaves us and He never forsakes us. And He'll just keep accepting us and keep accepting us because He paid a perfect price for our sins. I'm so grateful. Our last stanza, the romance, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, back in Galatians 4, verses 17 through 20. Let's read those. They eagerly seek you. Again, that's like a, you know, trying to gain somebody's affection. Not commendably. They have impure intentions with you is what that means. But they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. 
But it is good always to be eagerly sought, for sure, but in a commendable manner, like Paul and like Christ. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Oh, I wish I could be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. One of the marks of a false teacher is that he tries to attract others to himself and not simply to the truth of God's Word or the person of Jesus Christ. Right? I think... I'm going to upgrade that. I know. I know that at the Rock Community Church, we do that well. We point people to the Word of God, do we not? And we point people to the person of Jesus Christ. It's what Pastor John did when he started this church 13 and a half years ago. It's what I have done up until this day when John retired a year and a half ago. And it's what I will continue to do. And perhaps it's that DNA, this DNA of pointing people to God's Word and pointing people to Jesus Christ that made for arguably what was a very healthy transition from Pastor John to myself. I firmly believe that. Because it has nothing to do with John. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with pointing people to His Word and to His Son. And it's a peculiar place to be with all eyeballs on me and all eyeballs on John when it's just so not about us. It's just such an awkward place to be. But it's what God's called me to and it's, God, it's what God had called Pastor John to. So rest assured, church, the thing Pastor John and myself would be most thrilled about is seeing this church thrive for decades to come because we pointed people to God's Word and to His Son. Amen? Paul spoke truth, and the Judaizers spoke lies. Paul sought to glorify Christ, and that's what truth does. The Judaizers were out to glorify themselves, because that's what lies do. And we're to beware, because they're in the church, some of these religious workers who want your allegiance because they're the only one who is right. They're in the church. There's an enormous difference between those who fight for the truth and those who fight for their truth. Big difference. Those who fight for the truth compared to those who fight for their truth. The task of the spiritual leader is to get people to love and follow Christ. To love and follow Christ. To love and follow Christ. The task of us as spiritual followers is to find our joy, to find our identity, and to find our acceptance in Christ, in Christ alone, never in man. I've got a family member that's really, really in some deep waters because they're in that trap of trying to please man. I've been there. Nasty. Perhaps we, like the Galatians, because they were trying to win them over, maybe we just like to be won over. We like people to want our affection. I would venture to say that many of us, perhaps all of us, are guilty and need to confess and repent that far too often we are man-pleasers and not God-pleasers. Amen? Far too often. It's pathetic. I'm guilty. Probably more guilty than all of you guys. But I'm getting so much better. The ways that our lives are affected by being man-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. It's just nasty. And so Paul, in verse 19, he compares himself to a woman in great pain and suffering, giving birth or being in labor. 
Paul says, I experienced this. Essentially, I experienced this once for your salvation. And now he's in anguish again for their deliverance from false teachers. Labor pains. I'm a guy. I've not had labor pains. But I'm married to a woman for 28 years. And we had two kids together. And I was present in that room when she was having labor pains. I'm glad it was a spectator sport for me and not a participation sport. It looked miserable. Especially, and I can pick on my second daughter because she's not here. My second daughter had a very large head when she was born. It's the same size now as it was when she was born. I, I wouldn't want to labor again. Watch, right? Like I just had this vision in my mind. And literally, she just, her head was just so big. And she's not coming out. And my, I don't remember. So, I'm, I'm almost passing out, so I'm in a chair in the corner. My wife's like, where's my husband? Oh, and the nurse is over there fanning me. Mr. McGrath, are you okay? I'm not even the one in labor, and I can hardly take it. Did I say she, she had a big head? Did I say that already? I think right after that is when the whole bobblehead craze really took off because of my daughter, and I didn't get any royalties on that. I don't know what's wrong with me. You get the point, right? To do that again, that's got to be hard to say, oh, no, I already gave you birth once. I'm not doing it again. Hmm. There's a saying that when we're little, our kids step on our toes, but when they're grown, they step on our heart. Similarly, but on a larger scale, the Lord Jesus was in anguish on the cross for you and I. And Isaiah prophesies about it in Isaiah 53, verse 11. He says, as a result of the anguish, And that word anguish means toilsome labor. As a result of the anguish of his soul, of Jesus' soul, the Lord will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant Jesus Christ, will justify all of us as he bears our iniquities. Are we, are we willing, like Paul and like Jesus, to again labor for one another in Christ? Paul says... I labor again. Are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to be in anguish for our brothers and sisters in Christ until God or Christ is formed in those around us? That's what it says. I am again in labor, verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. If Christ is indeed formed in you, there's a strong possibility that someone labored on your behalf again and again, and again. And we must be willing to do that for one another. To labor again, and again, and again. I'm happy to do it. I love that about my role. And I know that there are times when I don't know if what God's wanting to do is happening. And I think, Lord, is, am I making a difference? But I am just, a, I, I rest in, in the comfort of God telling me all the time, labor again and again. And so I take joy. It's a joy to labor on your behalf to the degree that I have any impact in forming Christ in you. It's such a joy. Thank you so much. But we're to be that way for each other. It's not just my role. We're each to labor for one another while God is being, while Christ is being formed in each and every one of us. You know, in the next chapter of Galatians 5, he talks about that as the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 22, chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience with each other, kindness towards one another, 
goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. He writes about it here, Paul does in Galatians. He writes about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, I beg you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, church, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Thank you for tolerating me and one another. Colossians, he mentions it to the Colossian church as well in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, that's you, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord did the same thing for you and for me. We're so harsh sometimes. Turn to Romans chapter 2, a little to your left of Galatians. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Powerful verses. Romans 2, 1 through 4. I mean, I, I, I hope we receive this the way Paul intended for us to receive it. Verse 1. Therefore, you, I wish I could exclude you, but this is what it says, you, right? Put your name there. Therefore, Mark, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. You know what I'm an expert at? I'm an expert in finding the same faults that I have in myself. I'm brilliant at it. I'm like, oh, that person this, and it's like, oh, gosh, that's me. Oh, that person, oh, gosh, that's me. Have you noticed that? We're brilliant. That's what that means. We find things in people that were wrong in ourselves. It's just weird how true that is. When I pull the lens back, my oldest daughter, Chelsea, and I, we love each other. But we do a little bit of this sometimes. You know why? Because she's just like her poppy. Poor thing. Verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon you who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to somehow escape the judgment of God? Oh! And then verse 4. And here's what's beautiful about these verses. Or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and His tolerance and his patience, which is what he asks of us, not knowing that it's because of that kindness that leads to repentance. That's how we're to be with one another. That's how we're to be the church. We're not going to look these up. First Timothy 3.15 and 2 Corinthians 8.1. You can just write those down. Let me tell you what this verse tells us about the church. These verses tell us this, that the church is the pillar of truth, that's Timothy, and the house of grace. The church is the pillar of truth and the house of grace. We're going to have firm centers and soft edges. We must, because we're the pillar of truth and the house of grace. Amen?